0: The volume. No! Oh
1: my God! How could he do that? Are you but on? Don't donate to ch-
2: What? Charles Darwin.
1: The nerves is where it's at.
3: Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Breber and alongside me is Logan Candon. And today we are going to be breaking down every second round series, but we're going to start with Warriors Lakers where the dubs just responded, took game five in a do or die backs against the wall situation, but A big story that developed as this game went on towards the end, of course, Anthony Davis leaving with injury, took an elbow to the head from Kavan Looney, not sure the exact severity of that injury, but he obviously did not return, and it appears that it may be a concussion. So clear potential ramifications from that in these last two games of the series that we will touch on later, but let's just start, Logan, with what did you think was key to the Warriors coming out with this win, and what stood out to you?
4: Well, I still I thought we got really good Warriors offense in this game, and it wasn't traditionally great Warriors offense. They weren't shooting the lights out from behind the arc. They go thirteen of thirty five, o of nine in the third quarter. They're o of eleven in a stretch into the fourth until Steph ends that drought in the corner. Uh, You survive another bad clay game from deep, ten points on three of twelve from the field, two of six from deep, but. Like I said, I still thought we got really good offense from the Dubs. Curry was great, as always, getting offense started in the high pick and roll. They were attacking AD's man again, bringing him out of the paint. Uh, And that just forced the Lakers' defense to get in rotation all night long, basically. And that's something that I felt, too. We just kind of saw them in rotation all night. It always felt like, uh uh-oh, you know, they're in trouble. They're either getting back or they're – even in the half court, too, oh, they're a step late. Uh, Again, we see the Lakers not engaged enough, not disciplined enough, and not enough effort, in my opinion, closing out on shooters. Uh, And again, it didn't cost them tonight because, again, the Dubs did not shoot well. But uh, we saw some other good things. Steph was getting to the rack, I thought, really well when AD was there and when he wasn't getting to the cup. Uh, Basically, all the Dubs to the night, uh, two in transition. But we see some tough uh, shot-making late from Steph to put this game away. Tough mid-range pull-up. He had two of those in tonight's game. Uh, Like I said, that tough pull up in the corner that ended the Dubs drought from, uh, from deep. Steph is nasty with that, man. I love that corner shot. It's such a difficult one moving like that, but it's so much fun. And Steph was setting up his teammates all night tonight with the pick and roll. Draymond being aggressive, taking advantage of a lot of those two. He hits a three early. He's trying to just get downhill a little more. Just He's just being more aggressive. I think that's when this Warriors offense is really at its best, is when you have another threat out there on the court. The, if the Lakers defense isn't going to respect you, like, Dre is forcing them to respect him on defense. I just think that's something that he needs to consistently do night to night. I don't want Dre, don't get this confused. I don't want him shooting 10 to 15 a night. But I want Dre to be a little more aggressive getting to the cup because he's a good player, and he's a smart player. When he's trying to score, that opens up so many more opportunities for everybody else on the court. Uh, you get a really good Wiggins game, uh, cutting, making good decisions, uh, knocking down his jump shot. GP2 as well. I thought we get a great game from cutting, taking wide-open looks, making good decisions, getting out in transition. And he had some tough finishes at the bucket, which I'm not normally used to from a GP2 game. Um Jordan Poole was good enough, knocking down some shots, getting into rhythm early. Still a horrible defender, though, bruh. I don't think that's ever going to change. And I thought we just got more effort and hard from the Dubs, Carson. 51 total boards in this game to 38, nine offensive boards to four. They win the second-chance battle. And kind of the same old Lakers, man. I'm disappointed with the Lakers' effort and physicality. I was, I thought, from LeBron at certain points in this game, I thought we got flashes of uh-oh, I'm feel- especially that Euro on clay. I got fired up, man. He had a good jump shooting game, and then you see him getting downhill at some points in this game where I'm like, okay, LeBron, I see the beast coming out. I, I want the beast to come out a little more, but I thought we saw flashes of him in this game. Um, but, yeah, I- kind of the same old story for the Lakers and why they lost this game. I'm disappointed with their effort and physicality but this is kind of how I expected this game to go and how the Warriors to respond. This is a championship team. Their backs are up against the wall. They need to respond big time in this game and put it away, and they didn't make any excuses. They played great defense. They got out in transition. They pushed the pace tonight, and they manufactured good offense in spite of a bad shooting night, and a lot of that credit, again, goes to one of the best players on planet Earth, Steph Curry. Uh, Some would say he's fringe top 10, uh, but... Uh, Those are dumb people. Steph balled out again tonight, and like I said, man, I will never count out the Warriors in an individual game with Stephen Curry. Um, I'm dumb enough to put him number nine on my playoff players, but I'm not dumb enough to count him out in single-game situations, especially a championship team with their backs against the wall. Uh, It was a good game from the Dubs, and I'm still a little bit disappointed in the Lakers, if I'm being honest, in the effort and will category.
3: This was the game in this series in which I was most confident in the outcome beforehand. And that's even though I picked the Lakers to win this series and I thought that they were the better team for the majority of the first four games because there was no question to me that the Dubs were going to come out here with their championship identity, with Steph being the supernova talent that he was, and play with more force, play with more intensity, given the tendency that we've seen of these Lakers to just toggle back and forth between the good version of themselves and the bad version of themselves and this game started Like in the most extreme version of that right the dubs get up 17 5 earlier the lakers aren't creating particularly good shots Dubs are running getting easy transition looks and although the lakers were able to stay in this with shot making It never really felt like they were gonna push in this game and I think In spite of that subpar effort from the Lakers, there are definitely some very real positives to take away from the Warriors in this game, and I think you touched on a few of them. Their willingness to get out in transition, I thought, was phenomenal, because that is when this Warriors offense is at its best. It's when any offense is going to be the most efficient, but with the level of shooting that you have here, how spread out you can get things against a Lakers defense that with AD has at times been pretty stifling in the half court because of how dominant he's been, but has had a bit of a tendency to let up in transition to not get back with peak intensity. You're going to create good opportunities, and they did in this one. 28 transition points, nine of those coming from Steph, who I thought did a great job of pushing the tempo. We've just seen him in this playoff run so much play at whatever pace he wants. And in this one, it was fast, and I thought that it was very effective. So that stands out. And then I think the level of aggression that we saw from Dre and Wiggins in tandem was huge. And it reminded me a lot of Game 5 in the King series. When those two combined for 41 on 17 of 26 shooting, you saw them attacking mismatches against smaller guards when they got switches. Dre really just taking open shots, which he's not always inclined to do. And this game, they combined for 45 on seven of 17 of 29 shooting. And yeah, Dre came out aggressive. And I did like it because it didn't feel like he was forcing stuff. I mean, he only takes three jumpers in this game. He makes two of them. One of them was that bailout shot clock mid-range jumper that he managed to make. And then he goes one of two from deep on open looks. I'm okay with that. But more importantly, I thought he was moving to open space very effectively as a cutter. Got a good look or two off the roll, which is going to consistently happen for him. And so he should take those opportunities. And I like that. But even more important, I think is Wiggins abusing mismatches when he gets them. Because that's what he did in this one. I mean, he can take these guards down to the post when he gets a Dennis Schroeder possession. When he gets a Lonnie Walker possession, like we saw at the end, he has the bag, he has obviously the size advantage, and he's physically capable enough to get a very good look very consistently. So we saw some of that combined with cutting hard, combined with he had that one put back, and a couple of open catch and shoot looks. So it was just... A very controlled but aggressive game from both of them. And I think those are two guys who absolutely, along with GP2, are capable of adding an element of interior scoring that this offense does need. Because they have been extremely reliant on the three ball in this entire playoff run. They're taking 43 triples a night, which is the most in the field. That's coming into this game, I should say. Five more than last year. And we have seen at times them lose games just because that three ball isn't falling. I mean, think about game four. They outplayed the Lakers, no question. They just didn't have a very good shooting night, and that cost them. So this one, they are able to produce really high-level offense without having that dominant game from beyond the arc, and I think that Wiggins and Dre deserve a lot of credit for that, and it's going to become especially key if Anthony Davis is out, and even if the Lakers continue to switch pick and rolls as much as they were in this game, because we had pretty rarely seen that coverage in the first four games. Obviously, we saw it on the final possession with AD, but there were switching screens with people other than AD. But if you are switching... A guard, whoever is on Steph, onto Wiggins or Draymond, that is going to inherently be a mismatch. And those guys have to be responsible for being aggressive there, for not just allowing the possession to reset. And I thought that this game was a good indicator in that respect.
4: And I also think that, look, man, the Lakers can be physical and take that pain away, but I also think. I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but I think the Lakers are kind of soft in the way that if the Warriors really push them in a really physical two outside of the guards, because I think you're exactly right. It was because they were switching more tonight. It was there. It was a noticeable amount of possessions where Wiggins had a smaller guy on him, and I was like, man, this doesn't happen. They need to keep doing it, and they did a, he did a phenomenal job at attacking those. And so I think that. Just being more physical and trying to be more aggressive at getting downhill is something that Dubs should just inherently do, too. One, because you're always mm-hmm. going to have one of those guys as a potential mismatch if you want to draw it up. If it's Reeves, if it's Delo, if it's Schroeder, or if it's Lonnie Walker. And then, like I said, man, I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but if you push at the Lakers, if you push at AD, I, I don't think AD's a bear. I know AD can affect the interior like that night to night, but... I think they can go at him a little more than a traditional big man because, I mean, you see it tonight, and I'm not trying to call AD saw for going out. That was a – he took some licks tonight from Looney, dude. He took some licks tonight in general, and I really hope he's okay because it does change the complexion of the series, and I always like seeing the best players out there. And AD's a good guy. Like, I, I want to see the best basketball. I want to see the Lakers at full health. But I think you can go with these Lakers a little more than other teams, and the Dubs haven't really done that. They've settled a lot. I want to see him build off of this game and, in general, be more aggressive at attacking that interior because they went at it tonight and it was there.
3: Well, I think it really depends on what version of AD you're getting. Game 1 and Game 3 AD, I think they had a really hard time scoring in the paint because he was being so dominant. But these last two games, he hasn't blocked a shot. And this is a guy who was averaging four-plus blocks a game coming into that stretch. And just overall, as a deterrent, he hasn't been the same kind of just absolute monster. So... We saw it in game four too, right? I mean, they were getting good looks off the roll. Steph hitting the roll man consistently. Guys were cutting, finding that space, and finding success. And I mean, GP2 these last two games, a lot of it has been in transition, but he's got his super efficient 28 points, and he is probably the most consistently aggressive downhill role player on this team as a cutter and in transition, and so you are seeing them capitalize on that right now. But... This is just a really strange Lakers team, and they were able to hang in this one again, but it just didn't feel like they should have been. You had awesome, aggressive AD with some really impressive mid-range and touch shot making in the first half, and LeBron was both hitting his threes and he was getting to the rim seemingly at will. I mean, he had an efficient 17 in that first half, and then it's like, yeah, they take that sucker punch. You have the clay big three. And then the Steph big three to end the half, all of a sudden you're down 11 and they just fade away. And they combined for six made field goals in the second half while neither of them were at their peak level defensively really for a moment of this game. So even though they produced fine offense throughout this one, the approach was so strange. It was like everybody was working as an individual on any given possession and there wasn't that clear collective identity. Or goal. It was like, all right, well, Reeves shot pretty well from deep, knocks down three triples, and they had a bit of trouble contain- containing D'Lo, so he got some good looks around the rim, and Schroeder got his, but it just never felt symbiotic. It never really felt dangerous, I guess, and like, shout out Lonnie Walker for his 15.4th quarter in game four, but it was too much Lonnie Walker, man, too much of him handling the ball, too much of him going to these mid-range pull-ups. Like, when you have LeBron and AD, that needs to be the focal point of your offense for of the game and then Reeves and D'Lo and Schroeder those guys are the complementary players who can make a big difference but it's just another instance of them relying on those guys too heavily so if AD were playing yeah I would still be relatively confident in the Lakers to finish this off because I do think at peak intensity, their two-way ceiling is very high. They can impose themselves on the rim. They do have this good complementary shot making. They have a bunch of guys who can step up and swing at any game. We've talked about it. But if he doesn't play, I don't see how the Lakers do win a game. Like, if he's not playing game six, I would pick the Warriors confidently because now... The Lakers do not have the same caliber of defensive personnel, especially with Jared Vanderbilt getting played off the floor by them just completely ignoring him. So now you're playing four on five whenever he's out there. Like, now you're not taking away the rim. Now you're not in a position where you can play really any sort of intimidating pick and roll coverage, and they're just going to switch. And we saw Steph start to hunt mismatches in this one. He started going to his isolations and... Yeah, he knocked down a couple step backs, particularly he was looking to get Austin Reeves. I just think that's big time trouble. And then the Lakers are also losing their most consistent offensive force. And the guy who has been able to dominate that pain area, LeBron, Reeves, D'Lo, all these guys have kind of come and went throughout this series, depending on their perimeter shot making. So, I mean, AD has dominated two games in this series. He is the reason the Lakers are up above all else without him good luck.
4: No, I would pick the dubs in the next game, and then I would pick them again if AD's not out there. I mean, he's the guy that gives them the advantage. He's the guy that puts LA over the top. Like, we can give credit for LeBron for being, you know, good enough in this series, and not only in this series, in this run. I mean, AD has been consistently their best player, and the biggest reason is how he can take away the rim and completely take out the paint and how he can dominate on the glass night to night when he wants to and just be a one of the best interior forces in basketball. AD is like that, and it's a huge loss for them. I would take the dubs. I, I want to ask you, I mean, if AD does not play this next game, what is your lineup? I mean, are you going Hachimura, Bron, Vando? Like, what does the starting five look like? How does the rotation change? Like... What do you think LA does if AD is out?
3: Well, I think the first key that you have to look at is LeBron's actually going to have to step up as the primary ball handler. I just think they're going to need a level of downhill pressure from him, creating good drive and kick opportunities. They're going to need that kind of command of the game. They can't just do this rotating possessions between Reeves and D'Lo and him sort of approach. In terms of the starting lineup, I think that you are not going to see Vando starting anymore. Honestly, I could see them going three guards, D'Lo, Reeves, Braun. And then, yeah, you probably need Rui for that size in the front court, Or it's going to be Lonnie Walker instead of Schroeder. But I think Rui is going to get the start. But they're just not talented enough without AD. And if I had more faith in LeBron reaching that supernova level, like, all right, Braun, we're going to play five out. Because they absolutely can do that, right? I mean, they're going to go small. LeBron is going to be the biggest guy in the starting lineup. And if I were like, LeBron is going to be just hunting mismatches all game and creating great looks for himself or getting good looks around the rim for 48 minutes, that would have to be the path. But we have not seen that LeBron once, so I don't want to bet on it. And yeah, this is going to be the most desperate he'll be, certainly. And I do think we'll see a more aggressive LeBron. But I don't think it's enough with that talent deficit.
4: It's going to be a real test, and I think it's there's also a a size and physicality advantage that I think the Dubs are going to have. I mean, if you get twenty minutes, of, if you get twenty minutes of Kavon Looney, Wiggins plays the whole game, Draymond. These are guys who are really good at attacking the boards, hunting the glass. GP two out there, like I think that's a clear disadvantage that the Lakers are at. Oh, yeah. um, I don't think I'd pick it either. I want to see it. I mean, this is going to be the biggest test that LeBron is going to have to face in these playoffs. Is if AD's not out there, I mean, <laughs> you do not want to take on the Golden State Warriors in game seven at home. That's just the, that's a, it's a seemingly like death sentence. Like, I know it's LeBron James, and I would also never count LeBron James in any game he plays out of a game, but that's worst case scenario, and you don't want to let it get to that. So, I mean, LeBron's going to have to turn it up a notch and show us what he's got in the tank.
3: Absolutely. But, Hopefully AD does play because I think this Lakers team can legitimately win the title. I mean, flaws and all inconsistencies and all their two-way ceiling and the combination of star power and really high-level role-player production that they're capable of putting together is the reason that we've believed in this team since before the playoffs and picked them to go to the conference finals. And if it's Denver who comes out now, I don't know who I would lean in that matchup, but I want to see them at least get a fair crack At making it because if this is a third straight year that is derailed for them in ugly fashion like obviously the Suns first round exit LeBron and AD play neither is a hundred percent AD misses a game and change of that series last year was just an altogether health disaster and they had a fellow named Russell Westbrook who didn't fit so well on the team so if this is how this chapter of the Lakers story ends after so much promise that would be really really unfortunate and disappointing but a good win for the Warriors nonetheless keep themselves alive backs against the wall it's what they've been doing for the better part of a decade and they deliver again in this one Let's talk about the other team that was able to dig themselves out of a 3-1 hole for the moment.
0: NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals.
3: We're actually able to beat the Miami Heat with Jimmy Butler on the floor. What did you take away from this?
4: Well, I want to start by giving a lot of credit to the Knicks uh, stars. You know, uh, Jalen Brunson plays all of this game. He deserves so much credit for just keeping the offense in rhythm and like a float. Uh, Emmanuel quickly is once again out, gets no burn in this game. You get a lot of him and Quentin Grimes. That's not a lot of backcourt creation. You know what I mean? Like that's not a lot of reliable ball handlers that can create for other guys and so Brunson is forced with the task a really tall task of getting downhill of consistently initiating uh, initiating out of the pick and roll of getting to his spots and he did a phenomenal job at that I mean Brunson misses here and there but for the most part it's just draining floaters draining runners hitting these mid-range jumpers these are tough shots and he was also on from behind the arc and so I just think I mean you get a 37 piece from him in this game it's a really good Jalen Brunson game, and he der- he deserves a ton of credit for making the Knicks' offense what it was for today. Uh, for today, 38, nine and seven—that's crazy. I think R.J. Barrett deserves a lot of credit. Was hitting his jumper, was also just being more impactful and forceful and downhill. And I want to see this from R.J. consistently. When we get back to this next regular season, and in the future, I've seen a very physical, aggressive. I'm getting to the whole RJ, in these playoffs, attacking closeouts off of good setups from his teammates. I want to see him continue to do that. Julius Randle frustrates me to no end during games. He has no back. It is frustrating, dude. Like, it kind of reminds me of, like, me out there on the court, man. I'm literally just trying to turn around and hit a lefty jumper because I have nothing to give you. <laughs> And at times, it feels like that with Julius. That's why it's frustrating, because he's settling. And this is a really tough matchup, too. He's going up against Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, two really good matchups for him, and two of the best defenders on the planet, point-blank period. It's a tough setup. But Julius early in this game, 1 of 7, 6 points. Later in this game, thank you, Julius, attacking closeouts, Getting downhill, setting up stuff for his teammates. Even if he was over aggressive at times and turned the rock over, he was looking to kick out. And Julius turned this around in the second half. And so, yeah, I was really impressed with the big three here from the Knicks. They all pull their weight, do their job. And I thought, I don't know if you saw this exact play, the Ob top and lob uh, in the second quarter. I thought it gave the Knicks like crazy momentum. Carson, ten to two Knicks run start the second quarter, seventeen five to start the mm-hmm. third. You have an eleven zero run but it always kind of felt like Miami was just waiting. One of these threes falls, and they said that on commentary too. One of them falls, it can kickstart this offense and get them rolling. They are still very reliant on three-point jump shooting. It also frustrates me to no end. They are three of 19 at the half. They are five of 12 in the fourth quarter. They catch fire there, but this is a team that attempts 37 threes a night in the playoffs, and it's going to Be hot and cold sometimes. Struess was, at a point in this game, Struess was 4 of 10. Everybody else on the team was 1 of 17. But one of these, and it's like a fire sergeant. the offense just gets going. Duncan Robinson hits a 3. Lowry hits a pump fake on Mitchell Robinson. Reloads, drains a 3. You get another Lowry 3. And it's a 9-0 Miami run. It was really good. Um, And they cut it, and it looked like they might steal this thing. Late game, I want to... Uh, mentioned something that really frustrated me. You have Butler on Isaiah Hardenstein in back-to-back possessions in this game, and I don't really understand that schematically if that's just how it ended up on the court or what. Uh, Hardenstein gets a crucial offensive board that doesn't come back to kill him, but then he has that big put-back dunk where Jimmy overcommits on defense. And I just think if BAM's there, you have a little more length, a little more play, a better guy in the paint. I didn't like that for Miami. I thought that really cost them at the end, but I was really surprised. Carson, you made a a tweet, follow Carson on Twitter at Carsoby. There's your plug, my boy. Um, hey, thanks. <laughs> uh, the Heat have 29 points off turnovers to the Knicks five. They beat them in second chance points, 21 to 12 in this game. And in bench points, it's 42 to eight. Uh, really, really weird numbers to still win a game. I did think it came down to the, uh, the Knicks stars being better. Jimmy waits to kind of kick into gear here late. He needs to be more impactful throughout the game. Uh, Again, a lot of this was a slog from Miami, just chucking threes, how they get into rhythm. A lot of pull-up jump shots from Gabe Vincent, from Max Struce. They can get into lulls like that. Um, They did have some open catch-and-shoot opportunities where I do expect them to shoot better. Kevin Love has an absolutely atrocious game in this one. Couldn't hit water if he was standing on a dock. But I do think Jimmy needs to impose his will, and that was the big distinction for me. Mm -hmm. All these really big discrepancies, I thought the Knicks were – Their stars just played better. The Heat won the effort category again, uh, but I just thought the Knicks' stars were better, and that was kind of the decider. Jimmy waited to kick into gear, and it was was a little too late.
3: Absolutely, and I think that the Knicks really excelled in a lot of the areas that we would say they need to if they want to win these games. And first and foremost, it is the level of shot-making and overall offensive creation that we got from Jalen Brunson. But we've talked about throughout this series, The Knicks' inability to hold the heat accountable for packing the paint, for having constant help when Brunson is trying to get downhill, when Julius Randle is, because of how bad they have been in terms of spot-up shooting. And I thought that Brunson just showed you his ability to score in so many different ways and from so many different spots on the floor, and particularly in the lane, but without having to get all the way to the rim. And that's kind of been his signature thing throughout this series and throughout this playoff run. He's making 57% of his floaters in these playoffs, which is just sensational. But you also saw him knock down a couple of catch-and-shoot threes, which I think is really valuable when you have your best player who is willing to still score within the flow of the offense. Because if it's Julius Randle, Logan, he really loves to just pound the ball, get a rhythm dribble, and then take a step back anyways. Like, literally, he will pass up catch-and-shoot threes to do that regularly. Brunson, I just think, is a smarter, more complete more cohesive basketball player with other pieces but like you see him go to the post a couple times in this game which we know he's totally capable of he is one of the most physical small guards in terms of creating separation for his mid-range game and his overall post game that I can think of seeing draws a foul doing that late against Gabe Vincent and I also want to shout out RJ for going to the post a couple times in this one because Coming into the series, I felt that was the clearest advantage that the Knicks have. You can talk about top-end shot creation with Brunson and Randall, and at times RJ versus the Heat being pretty reliant on Jimmy in terms of star offensive production consistently. But it's also just their size and athleticism advantage up and down this roster. And I thought this was a good instance of RJ attacking those advantages in a controlled manner. And I just want to, again, shout out that man because he has had many more good games than bad since that really ugly first two-game stretch in Cleveland. And it's been impressive. I mean, he hasn't been perfect, obviously. His shot-making is still inconsistent. His touch, his jump shot, all that— But his selection has been better. His willingness to weaponize his athleticism. And yeah, he has shot the ball well at times too. And then Randall, you said it. I mean, getting downhill more. And I thought that he didn't press as this game went along, which can be so brutal when he shoots 30% and he's taking 20 shots and he's dictating so many possessions. That can really hurt this offense. And I didn't feel like this was one of those instances, but... When you put together how like soundly they outplayed the Heat in terms of their half-court shot making and shot creation from their stars, it's crazy that this game came down to the wire, and it is because of what you laid out, dude. The Heat remained the most opportunistic team in the NBA, and the Knicks did not take care of the ball. The Heat, first of all, have been so disciplined throughout this series, not turning the ball over. I think they had 13 turnovers through the first two games combined, but the Knicks give them 18 turnovers in this one and they turn it in to 29 points. So they're just leaving the door open. Same thing goes for the second chance opportunities. The Heat, especially given the caliber of three point shooting team that they are, are going to get good looks off of offensive boards. And this was another one where even though I think both these teams end up with similar offensive rebound totals, the Knicks actually have three more. The Heat are just more efficient off of those opportunities. So a lot of the same takeaways for me I think if Jimmy is like the version of Jimmy that we've seen throughout these playoffs if he is exerting himself completely trying to get his 30 and 8 the Heat probably still could have won this game but they didn't have that reliable offensive half court creation and the shot making wasn't there I do want to shout out Duncan Robinson for coming off left bench and like being the caliber of shooter that we were used to him being for two years because that's been cool to see, and this was a really good game from him. The Knicks showed us in some ways their ceiling in this game, what they're capable of when their big three is clicking, but we also saw some of the same issues continue to bite them, but at least they shot reasonably well from beyond the arc because if they have another brutal shooting night, as it's been in all of their losses in this series where they're literally hovering around 20% from deep, I don't think that they get out of it. So just quickly, now that the Knicks have grabbed this game, what's your feel on where the series is headed from here in these last one to two games? Yeah, I mean, I
4: still don't know if like, you saw Julius Randle in the presser. I I don't know if the Knicks are going to be able to get their effort level up enough. It's weird saying that in a playoff setting, but dude, the Heat swarm. Like Miami is yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's it's crazy. Like they, they, they just, they, it's like a bunch of bees, man. I can't, they just crash the ball. They, they're hungry for it. And I don't see the Knicks winning any of these effort categories. Like I said, I think they can win the glass. They have the size advantage. They've consistently had the size and physical advantage, but who keeps winning those categories? I know they didn't get offensive boards, but it's still like, Miami got enough, and they converted enough of them to keep them in this game. Jimmy, Bam, Struess, and shout-out Caleb Martin, dude. Caleb Martin has been one of my most favorite players to watch in this series. I haven't brought him up on the pod, but if we're getting into the weeds here, I do want to give a shout-out to him. Man, Attacking closeouts, being physical when he has open lanes, really attacking them. And the shot is inconsistent, but he's a real high-energy effort guy, and I've really liked his consistent effort in this run. I think the Heat are better. And I think that it's going to be hard for the Knicks to sustain this level of offense. This was good Julius Randle. I've seen a lot of bad Julius Randle. I wonder if we're going to see more of that. I don't know if I can trust the Knicks to continue this level of great offense. Like, I thought Brunson was really, really good tonight, but that touch can be off on a few possessions. He could go cold from deep, and that could really kill him like we've seen earlier in this series. And, again, I think Jimmy and Bam are the best offensive and defensive player in this series I think they're going to win the effort plays, and I think they're going to shoot better from behind the arc. This is a really bad shooting night for Miami uh, than regular. So, yeah, I think I'd probably take Miami in next game if Jimmy really has it turned on. What do you think, though? Did the Knicks inspire you, or are you willing to rock with them?
3: No, I agree with you. I just don't think this Knicks team has been consistent enough in terms of their shot making, both spot-up and the pull-up jump shooting from their stars to bet on them when Miami has completely bested them in execution, in securing and capitalizing on those extra possessions. As you said, they have the best player in the series, and their role players have consistently been better. Like, this Knicks bench that was a strength throughout the regular season has not played up to expectations in the playoffs. Obviously, IQ now is hurt, but he just was not the player he was in the home stretch of This regular season, when he was dropping 20 a night post All-Star break, and I thought deserved to be sixth man of the year, haven't seen that IQ once. In this game, I mean, they just basically stopped turning to the bench, with the exception of Hartenstein. They played both Grimes and Brunson 48 minutes. I get it for Brunson. I mean, he's a hell of a competitor. If he wants to be out there, let him. Quentin Grimes, though, including, obviously, after that little injury where he had the awesome steal, which was dope, but... Josh Hart is fantastic. Josh Hart is better than Quentin Grimes. I know that he was in foul trouble, and that's a big reason that he only played nine minutes, but he only played nine minutes, Logan. I would rather have Josh Hart play 12 minutes and foul out than play nine minutes and just be sitting there with three to four fouls throughout the game. So Tibbs continues to fascinate and perplex me, but there's a reason that the Heat have looked like the better team for basically four games straight before this, including a solid portion of the game in which Jimmy Butler did not play. And I think that it's because they're the sharper, more complete team with the best player on the floor. But tonight Brunson was the best player on the floor. There's no doubt about that. And the Knicks did everything that they needed to win. And it was very good to see because it would have sucked if such a fun season for them had ended with a five game defeat at home to a lower seed. I do still think the Heat are better, but at least the Knicks get to have a moment like that in Madison Square Garden. Let's move on to Nuggets' sons, Logan, where the Nuggets went back home, took a decisive 3-2 lead in this series. What's your take on where this is headed now?
4: Again, man, in these one-game scenarios, it's tough, right? There's a lot of different variables that can go on. D-Book and KD could very well turn it on and go crazy, and I thought that was a, a big difference within, uh, w- within this game. Uh, 68 total points yep. per game and 27 uh, points per game from these two off pull-up jumpers in these first four games. Tonight, you get 54 total points and 23 points on pull-up jump shots. That's a really nice night. I mean, in the scope of, like, regular basketball games, that's really good for your, like, two guys, you know. But especially on pull-up jumpers, you get 11 and 12 from them. But <laughs> as we've noted here, that's not going to be enough. You know, you need superhuman KD and Devin Booker in this series to get it done, and you didn't get that tonight. Uh, they go 18 of 43 from the field with seven turnovers, book eight of 19 KD 10 of 24 and a fun stat from these playoffs Phoenix is 0 of 0 and 3 when D or KD score less than 30 so again you need those guys to both basically be perfect like you need them at their best levels to beat this Nuggets team night to night I thought the, the Nuggets did a much better job defending this Phoenix team in transition first four games they allow 19.3 points per game in transition Denver uh were, they were negative 29 in fast break points in these first four games. I mean, that is where Denver has been getting slaughtered this series. Uh, Phoenix, they lead every remaining team in the field in fast break points. But in this one, the Nuggets outscored them 31 to 25 in fast break points. And I just thought everybody was getting down there a lot better, man, especially Bruce Brown. <laughs> Goes for 25 in this game. A Carson Breber favorite, man. Hyping up Bruce Brown when he was when he was little, man. Uh yeah. Ten points on 52-20-80 splits in these first four games. Brown gets to the line ten times in this game, makes nine of them, <laughs> hits two of his four uh, threes. Just great game from him. And, again, the Nuggets, I just thought, were getting out in transition a lot more, man. You got a lot better from the role players. Uh, another big thing, too, very broad. They were 2 of 18 on wide-open threes in these last two games. They noted that during the broadcast. They were just hitting open looks better, man. And it's not like the Nuggets weren't manufacturing them. The Nuggets manufacture these shots with ease every game it's just are they going to hit him? you get a big mpj explosion in the first quarter 14 19 8 and 2 in this one 7 11 from the field 5 of 8 you need good mpj we don't need great mpj and while murray struggled three of ten in the first uh you know three quarters he finishes this game four of five with two threes in the fourth murray was great at closing i don't know what else we can say about Nikola jokic that is new man 29, 13, and 12. He's great. Uh, three stocks in this game, too. A lot better defensively. They out- rebound this team, again, dominating in that category, 50-42 to 42 in boards. Ten offensive boards to the Suns, eight. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the same keys, but the Nuggets were a lot better tonight. It's slowing down the Suns in transition, and their offense is clicking, man. You didn't have MPJ on and off night. You had Jamal catch fire when he needed to, and the role guys played a lot better. Big shout-out to Bruce Brown, though, man. I mean... He balled, dude. 25 tonight and just getting downhill, being a bull, and attacking the paint. And uh, yep. But the big thing to me was the difference in transition tonight. The shooting is going to come and go. That's going to fluctuate. The Nuggets are a good shooting team. But a lot better in getting out in transition on offense and getting back in defense. That's where they needed to improve, and they did. And, yeah, I think you need superhuman KD and D-Book to, night to night to uh, make this Phoenix team competitive and for them to win games.
3: Absolutely. We've seen that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And they came back to earth. And this is why we both said after game four that we believed in the Nuggets formula more. Games one and two of this series, the Suns were 41% effective field goal percentage on pull up jumpers. Games three and four, they were 59. Game five, 46, which is still a solid number. It's just not an astronomical number. And Katie and Book, I thought this was definitely the worst collective game that they've played in this series. Katie, I just think is so reliant on the pull-up shooting right now and is not taking good care of the ball either. This was his third game this series with five or more turnovers and he got stripped another time that was counted as a missed field goal. He almost turned the ball over another time just like fumbling a catch. Very, very strange stuff from him, but they're guarding him well. Aaron Gordon, obviously, as a primary guy, has done a good job with his length and athleticism, but... They put these smaller dogs on him like Bruce Brown and Christian Brown and those guys just get up in him and make him uncomfortable and he's not attacking downhill and he still gets to the line a decent amount but bottom line is he's taking contested jumpers and they were not falling at an efficient enough clip in this one. And then Book, I thought... Mostly got better shots, actually. I thought attacked the rim a bit more, got to his short mid-range game. But then just in that third quarter, as things started to unravel in the Nuggets' direction on both ends of the court, I thought he started to force some more of those like really highly contested jumpers. And he wasn't playmaking at the same level at all in this game. He was very much in a score-first mindset, and they need him to be able to dissect this Nuggets' defense. We talked about how brilliant he was in Game 4, Whipping those passes to the weak side corner out of pick and roll, and we just didn't have good playmaking book in this game. And then also the Suns role guys came down to earth. I mean, they shot the hell out of it in game four, Landry Shamit in particular. And this game it was the Nuggets role players who were better, which is what you expect because they are better. Like they just have more impact guys. Bruce Brown is clearly the sixth best player on this team, and he gets 25 points. And it's not just that he gets 25 points. The Suns don't have a Bruce Brown in terms of the versatility of his impact. Like when Landry Shamet gets his 19, it's because he is making catch and shoot threes. Bruce Brown is attacking in transition. He's cutting well off of Jokic. He's working as a catch and shooter. He scores off an offensive board. He's running some pick and roll. Like he's just a better all around basketball player. And the Suns are lacking in terms of those supported supporting pieces as we have known. So we continue to see the beauty of this Denver Nuggets roster like people have talked about how they don't have another all-star alongside Jokic but they have a lot of really great complementary pieces with Murray's pull-up jump shooting MPJ's special special catch and shooting KCP's catch and shooting and ability to attack closeouts and Aaron Gordon being this awesome interior lob threat and cutter and then Bruce Brown coming off the bench now Christian Brown being a really really solid rotational guy but Jokic is making his case for best player alive. I mean, that is the headline from all of this because this game was competitive. Like, although the Suns had some struggles early, the Nuggets didn't put them away in that first half. And then Jokic comes in the third quarter, has 17 points and three assists, and I believe just misses one shot in that period. And he breaks the game wide open and it's over because he is a mismatch for everybody. He gets good shots at will. And This is while he makes every single pass in the book. And if you guard him perfectly, he's still more likely than not is going to score because of how special he is as a difficult shot maker with the turnarounds and with just this unprecedented touch. But yeah, I mean, in transition, he's sealing guys off, getting floaters out of the post. Landale, Aiton, right? They're barbecue chicken. Everybody's barbecue chicken for him. And it's part of the reason I thought it was so funny that book came out and said, yeah, we're good with him getting 50 if we win. And people just went and then started parroting that. It's like, guys, he didn't just get 53. He got a highly efficient 53, 74% true shooting, and 11 assists. That could never be an effective plan. Like, he's just saying that for the camera, fellas. They got absolutely torched by Jokic. They won this game because they played unbelievable offense themselves. But, shocker, they don't have an answer for him. And he is in one of the most impressive offensive postseason stretches of this century. And if he continues it, of all time, he's averaging 31 13 and nine and a half on 53 49 77 splits. Logan, 61% true shooting. The only other guy to ever put up those raw numbers, 30, 13 and nine in a playoff run, is the Oscar Robertson. And his floor night to night, we know what his ceiling is, right? We've seen the 40 plus nights and the 53 piece and all this. But I mean, his worst game, first of all, in this series against the Suns. Pretty much everyone has been a masterpiece. Game 1, his shot making was a bit off, but he still completely controlled that game. You go back to like game 1 against Minnesota, maybe you want to say that, but that was a blowout win, he didn't need to take over. It's probably game 5 against Minnesota, his worst game of these playoffs, where he has a really rough shooting night, 8 of 29, but still goes 28, 17, and 12, dominates as a playmaker, and scores 7 straight at the key stretch they need him to in a closeout game. And I do think that floor is a an important way to measure how great a superstar is because there are some guys who can have these incredibly high peaks and then other nights they just can disappear. Jokic is going to create great shots for himself and his teammates every single night. In this series, he's putting up 35, 14, and 10 on 65% true shooting, Logan. So I don't know if there is somebody who has more decisively exposed Those who are not watching games and who are drawing conclusions based on God knows what than Nikola Jokic because so much of the criticism launched against this man was baseless and he's showing exactly why. He has been the best player, I would argue, throughout these playoffs. I think Steph makes a compelling case. I don't think AD has quite had the offensive consistency. Jimmy, Book are certainly in that conversation. We've seen some unbelievable performances, but Jokic night to night. Is dominating the game offensively in a way that nobody else in the league can because of how physically unstoppable he is as that interior scorer and because of how brilliant he is as a playmaker.
4: That was beautiful. Yeah, I want to give you like I want to like stand up and like applaud you after that, man. That was fire, bro.
3: (laughs) I mean, listen, talking about Nikola Jokic is pretty easy for me. I think it's in my blood somewhere.
4: Jokic is like, he's like, like you said, man, he's like the sun coming up and down, man. He's dependable. He's, he's reliable. Some of these numbers are insane too, dude, because it's like, like you said, anywhere from anywhere on the floor, anytime he can serve you a bucket, dude. He's shooting Mm -hmm. 49% on threes. He's shooting 44% on jumpers, period. 55% on floaters. Like 63% on turnaround fades over 57 on hooks. He has everything in his bag, bro. Anywhere on the court yeah. at any time. It's. I think you're exactly right, bro. It, if you're discounting Jokic, you're not watching games. Although, the first quarter, he had like four offensive boards in that one possession, and it wasn't because he was like trying really hard, and he wanted to get those points on the board. It was because he was stat bad,
3: 100%. <laughs> he has blown a few more finishes right around the rim than you're used to seeing from him in this series, but... I think I'm leaning towards saying he's the best player alive right now. You know, I'll wait until the end of this entire postseason and see how things play out, but we've talked about how that seat was left open. I was a believer at various points over the last couple years that Jokic deserved that title, but I don't know that he's ever made a stronger case than what he's doing right here, right now, especially with the unstoppable level and the volume that he has reached while still maintaining great efficiency as a scorer. Because like he is making a case for the best scorer in this postseason, Logan. And that is his second most special ability. Just a historically, historically great offensive talent who deserves to get his shine. And I think that they're going to finish off the Suns. I don't know if it'll be in six or seven. But again, they're a better basketball team. They have much more reliable contribution from their supporting cast, and they have the best player in the series, and they're not so singularly reliant on this pull up jump shooting that is just going to inherently be variable. And Book and KD are capable of being special every single night, but there's a reason the Nuggets are up 3 2, even when Book and KD have mostly played at an unbelievable level. Let's talk about Sixers Celtics, Logan, because. Uh, the fans in Boston were booing, and for good reason in this one. Philly's up 3-2 now, and they're going back to their home floor. What'd you take away from this, and what are you expecting from here?
4: I don't know what to expect from here. I'll start with that. I have no idea. Um, I am phenomenally disappointed in the Boston Celtics. I have uh, We have been led astray uh, by the Boston Celtics. I'm Yeah, I- I'm disappointed, dude. We have held the belief this entire season that they are the— best cumulative roster outside of Milwaukee. And I think at any given point during the season, if you would ask one of us, they arguably do have the best roster. I mean, we, it, was, it mm-hmm. was 1A, it was 1B. And it, it's just a colossal letdown that they're down 3-2. You have game one where there is no Joel Embiid. It's time to strike. It's time to seize the day. And they took advantage of that at the rim without Joel Embiid, but that's a game you've got to win and Harden 40 pieces you again, they marginally win when James Harden has this phenomenal game, which is just so inconsistent. And you need to take advantage of those moments. And again, they just failed to capitalize. This one was more like a a wet fart for like lack of better term. And I mean, they just like, just complete disappointment. Just this, they just let me down so much. And I I don't ever like a team booing their own team on the home floor, but I get it. I do understand. I think we have to give a lot of credit to Philly, a lot of credit to Joel Embiid. Offensively, he's not like doing MVP stuff, but he's doing enough. 28-9-3 in this series, 44-29-87 splits. But Joel Embiid is still a complete mismatch. I think Horford has done as good a job as anybody in this series at defending him. Uh, Really active hands, really good job just staying up on him. But the Celtics are opting to let him take these jump shots. And he's been killing him, and it's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. If you bite on that pump fake, he is going to take one dribble and drive to the rack, and either you're going to have to foul him because he's got great touch, he also can just jam the ball because he's that kind of beast. And if you don't, he's going to kill you on jumpers. He is at 61% on jump shots in this series, Carson, and he is still dominating when going to the rack. He is drawing fouls and being forceful at nearly 12 a game. He's been great out of the post, generating attempts out of there at 1.1 possession or points per possession on five a game. That's the highest on decent volume on post-ups in the NBA in these playoffs. And I think the biggest realm where we have to give Joel Embiid credit is from taking away the paint from Boston. They are at just 23 field goal attempts per game in this series. That is more than four less per game from the regular season. Uh, he had five blocks in this last game. He's at 3.3 in this series. He has that massive, just crushing chase down block on Jalen Brown late in this game and again I want to remind you this is a Boston team after game one they attempt 35-45-44 in 37 threes in all of those games and their at rim attempts have basically been halved you have 13 in game two 14 in game three 14 in game five 23 in game four when they draw Embiid out a little more but the most staggering one to me is Embiid is not only taking away the paint and at rim Carson he's taking away shots inside, like, mid-range, period, because he's like that. In the regular season, the Seas attempt 36 inside at 10 feet uh, or closer at a 61% clip. Game one without Embiid, they attempt 44 at a 73% clip. In games with Embiid, down to 30 at a 58% clip. That's six less than the regular season at 3% worse field goal percentage. Like, Embiid has been great as a rim protector. Like, you can say what you want as an offensive hub, I think he's still been great there, not you know where he was during the regular season. He obviously 50-piece, this team, too, towards the end of the regular season. But I think you have to give him an immense amount of credit at just taking away the paint. The Celtics don't want to go down there. Um, you have a big maxi game, a 30-piece. Big credit to him knocking out tough shots all night. Good playmaking game from Harden, 17, 10, and 8. And it just didn't ever feel like Harden had to do too much. That's where you want this Sixers team to be. Not relying too heavily out of Harden. Great jobs out of the pick-and-roll, playmaking, making good decisions. And then, yeah, man, they're just disappointed in the Celtics, dude. I know the Cs can be better. I don't know about defensively. Like, I think Embiid could do this every single game. I think Maxi could do something like this 20 a night every single game. But just offensively, man, settling for threes, Horford's at 9-33. I know Embiid has been great at taking the pain away. They have been great at attempting or at converting those attempts and just making open threes and or mid-range attempts too. The Celtics have been bad inside the arc, but I think you just have to mostly be disappointed with their they're not converting any of these open threes smart. Is it ten of thirty in this series? White is it seven of twenty-one? Grant is at four of thirteen. Grant Williams, I respectfully, I think you suck. I think they need to bench you, dude, or move on from you.
3: <laughs> That's not respectful. Oh. There's no way of respectfully Sorry. telling someone you think I they don't suck. Think Grant sh- Actually, maybe, maybe saying there's some room for improvement, Batman.
4: Grant, I like you, dude. I liked your Halloween costume, dude. You've got to make some threes and play better defense. And. That's what perimeter shooting comes down to, bruh. Sorry, it's going to be, it's going to fluctuate night to night. That's the volatility of it. This team was six and three point percentage in the regular season at the second highest frequency, and they just haven't been hitting them. I want to give a big credit to Jalen Brown. I think he's been phenomenal in this series and in this postseason run. Uh, He's attempted less field goals as the game goes along, uh, but he has consistently gotten downhill, gotten free throws. He's been efficient. He's been a great shooter from behind the arc. I think Jalen Brown deserves. An immense amount of credit, and I've been disappointed in Jason Tatum, too, man. These consistently slow starts. Yep. And this was not a good Tatum game. I think people that, like, see the box score might go, oh, you know, Tatum gets his 30 and rebounded well. This is the second straight game where I've been really disappointed in Tatum. Like, I thought he got not bailed out uh, a certain amount by the refs, but a lot of this was free throw attempts. He was not converting any attempts from the field really well. The shot was consistently off again, and I mean Tatum's got to be better the Celtics have to shoot better as a collective I'm just disappointed dude I know this offense can be a lot better and they've got to shoot better but we've got to also see better Jason Tatum man I'm I'm disappointed in the Celtics I still think they're the most talented team in this field and how can you not be disappointed in this team when they're just losing games to an inferior opponent I feel I'm I'm once again let down by Boston but I'm not surprised
3: It's extremely disappointing and I want to key in on one specific thing first because I think it's super interesting and that is how they've played the pick and roll in this series and I want to shout out this Instagram account Stadium Speak which gave some super cool per possession stats on how they've handled Harden by coverage. So games one through four when they were playing a deep drop against Harden they allowed 1.02 points per possession on 67 pick and rolls that was their primary coverage And that's not great results defensively. When they played a high drop, they held them to 0.6 points per possession. That's across 22 pick and rolls. That is like an insanely good number for the defense. And then when they switched, it was 1.56 points per possession. That's across 24 pick and rolls, Harden absolutely barbecuing them. So I wanted to extrapolate this data, see how they approached game five. So I went and tracked this myself. And they mostly stayed in that deep drop in this game. To my eye, 12 possessions of deep drop out of Harden pick and roll, 1.4 points per possession. Small sample size, of course, for all these numbers, but that's very good for Philly when they played that high drop, which is the dropping defender is coming up higher to the level of screen, not conceding as much ground, whereas a deep drop is like a more conventional drop coverage where the big man's going to drop all the way into the paint, basically. When they played that high drop, they held Philly 2.8 points per possession, and then they only switched twice, but Harden scored both times, got five total points. So, my take from this, and it's supported by the numbers, but it's also more supported by the basketball logic, is that they should be playing that high drop more, and I think there's a few obvious reasons for that. One being that you are giving Harden less of that cushion, less of that runway to get down into that floater range or to just waltz into the mid-range because the advantage of a deep drop is that you are taking away the rim, right? And you are forcing guys to settle for floaters and for mid-range jumpers. That's all Harden is doing. We've talked repeatedly about the fact that he can't get to the rim in these playoffs and he can't finish around the rim. But he has been awesome from mid-range. 11 of 20 these playoffs, which is already his most mid-range makes in a postseason since 2015. And that doesn't even account for all of these short-range jump shots that are falling within the paint but feel like mid-range pull-ups. So you're letting him get to exactly what he wants. And then, first of all, playing drop is inherently going to concede pick and pop looks, right? But the biggest disadvantage and concern of playing that higher drop is that you're going to allow the big to get behind the dropper, right? Because he's playing higher up. But MB just doesn't do that. He's going to either drift to the nail, a softer roll, because that's where he wants to operate from, or he's going to pop completely out beyond the three-point line. So when you're playing this deep drop, he's getting great pick and pop looks and this one he scores 12 points out of pick and roll you mentioned how good he's been as a jump shooter they're leaving him they're giving him great looks some of it's out of the post but some of it is also out of these pick and pop looks so they're just giving Philly the shots they want out of what is potentially their most lethal offensive action and they're also playing this deep drop against Maxi who early in this game just walks into two wide open pull up threes so I have been troubled by the all-around defensive approach and effort of Boston. Spotlighting that one thing doesn't do justice to the fact that overall I think they have been lackadaisical, contesting shooters, not closing those gaps fast enough. Obviously game one was just an abomination throughout switching on to Harden and just letting him go to work repeatedly, but it's been a problem and they put themselves in a position where eventually things are going to start to come together more for Philly, right? Like, the maxi explosion we've been waiting for because he is a weapon. He was scoring 23 a night through the first five games of these playoffs and then he was very quiet games two through four, inefficient, didn't crack 15 points. This one, you get the full experience from him. Pull-up shooting, catch and shooting, getting into the lane. And he's totally capable of going nuts, of swinging any game, swinging any series. And he steps up and did this. But Boston should have been in a position where it didn't matter so much, Right. They absolutely deserve to be punished for their worst tendencies coming out because they should have won game one. Obviously, that was an embarrassment. They lost a game with no Embiid where they shot 59% from the field because they were not engaged defensively and they just let Harden hunt switches and cook all day. And then... They lost Game 4 because of poor effort in the first half, settling offensively, not engaged enough defensively, and then they get to a spot where they actually should win the game, and they completely botched the last defensive possession and offensive possession. Obviously, doubling Embiid, leaving Harden sitting on a 40-piece wide open for the game winner, and then not even getting a shot off on their last offensive possession. So, this is the game in which they were outplayed most convincingly throughout, And it's completely their fault that now they're down 3-2 because they put themselves in positions they shouldn't be in. And then when you're talking about, oh man, this is a close game that we should have won by 10 plus, they have a tendency of failing to execute in those situations. And this wasn't one of those games like they were just outplayed, but games one, games four, they should have won both those games. They could have swept this series, Logan, if they were dialed in, if they treated it with the appropriate level of respect that they should treat playoff basketball, But they didn't. And it's impossible to ignore the track record because this is the same team that blew a 10-point lead in the last five minutes against Atlanta last series and let that series get tight after they dominated the first two games. They should have went for the jugular and instead they put themselves in a position where it's all of a sudden scary for them. And it's the same core that last year went seven against a Miami team with two double-digit scores in that series and went seven against the Bucs without Chris Middleton When Milwaukee shot terribly in that series, 28% from deep, like repeatedly, they have had massive talent advantages and they have either eked series out or they have put themselves in a position where they're not capable of doing so because they blow a game or two and this series has been the epitome of that. So it's incredibly disappointing and we do have to hold Tatum accountable because yeah, he has responded well overall to these poor starts. I would say especially in Game 4 with his all-around effort. But even in this one, right? The commitment to getting downhill more I think is the biggest thing because sometimes he's so content to settle. But he starts Game Four, oh of 8. He starts Game Five, oh of 6. He doesn't make a shot in the first 18 minutes of Game 5. And we're just seeing that there is a level of separation, a gap between him and the other guys who we would talk about in the same tier As him in the regular season. And coming into these playoffs. right? AD's ability to dominate defensively. Is something that puts him in a different tier. And also to dominate as an interior scorer. But change games defensively. Book's unbelievable pure shot making. Where he is better than Tatum. More versatile. And his growth as a playmaker. Where he is clearly better than Tatum. Jimmy Butler's physical imposition. And two-way dominance. And his playmaking. Like all of those guys. Logan, we would say, are somewhere between the 8th to 12th best players in the league in the regular season, just like Tatum. Tatum's the one who was first-team All-NBA. None of them were. And they've all elevated their games to the point we're talking about them as first-team All-Playoffs, and Tatum has regressed. So, shout-out Philly for playing a good game. But, again, if Boston reached their peak level, they could have swept this series. And they didn't, and now they're paying for it. And there's a lot of people responsible their entire defensive identity, I do think some of the coaching decisions schematically by Joe Mazzola, and I think Jason Tatum proving us definitively, he doesn't belong in the top five conversation. Like, he's not that kind of consistent guy. He is not a consistent top-tier star. He is too reliant on the perimeter shot-making that isn't an elite trait. His decision-making is too liable to just leave him at times, to be bad. And I mean, he's not dominating these games defensively whatsoever, so... This is an all-around condemnation of the Boston Celtics until they turn around and win these last two games. If they do that, then hey, come on. You got some momentum. You've actually proven something to yourselves. You can fight and win and dig yourselves out of a hole instead of creating problems for yourself where there should be none there. And I don't want to play down this Philly team, but it's like this is the first game in which Philly has soundly outplayed them. They shouldn't be here, but they are because this is what they do.
4: This is wake-up time uh, for the Celtics, but we did see this last year. We saw them dig a hole for themselves against the Milwaukee Bucks. They go down 3-2, and Jason Tatum comes out in the next game, and he drops a 46-piece, and
3: they, Mm -hmm.
4: you know, force game seven. Grant Williams then goes off for the biggest game of Grant Williams' life, and they close it out. Um, Tatum's jumper was on.
3: Big game, Grant.
4: Big game, Grant. If we get one of those game sevens, maybe I'll lay off – Tatum hit seven threes in that game. That's something that cannot disappear. We need great jump shooting Tatum in these next two games. It's somebody that we've needed all series long. And I agree with you completely, Carson. That has been one of my biggest takeaways from these playoffs and from this Celtics run is Tatum is not there. And there were people arguing that he should be MVP. And I think the games played thing factors into first team as well. That's why he was there for me. He was consistently great. But Mm -hmm. this happened during the regular season. We've seen this consistently happen on the playoffs too. I don't think he's there. When we are talking about, like, legacy-wise for guys, I do think this is a big series for Embiid, getting that monkey off his back, man. He could go to the Eastern Conference Finals. This is something that we've noted leading up to these playoffs, 24-11-3 and 11 and three on 58% true shooting with 3.6 turnovers per game. That's what Embiid was at coming into these playoffs. That's a six-point-per-game drop and a two-free-throw game drop from the regular season. Boston five-piece Philly in 2018. Kawhi wiped them with the buzzer beater in 2019. They got swept by Boston in 2020, lost in seven to Trey in 2021, and they lost a six to Miami last season. Like, Embiid is 0-4 in the Eastern Conference Semis lifetime. This is a big deal for him in mm-hmm. giving him something that we can, like, rely on and concretely say playoff-wise, Embiid, you did it. That's a big accomplishment. Because think about it. The three players who have been dominating basketball these past three years, more than anybody else, Giannis Antetokounmpo, won a championship. We all bash Jokic for his playoff failure. He doesn't have a ring yet. He went to the Western Conference Finals. This is big, I think, for Embiid in terms of what he's been able to do rim protection-wise and how he has at least been able to sustain his physical dominance, getting to the line, and his other jump-shooting dominance. I think all goes into, you know, really giving him credit that he is able to do this. But in in saying that, I do think the Boston Celtics are better. I have concretely held that. and Yeah, man, this is a, this is going to tell us a lot about the Boston Celtics and their resolve. I mean, especially Jason Tatum, too. If he really deserves to be up there, we're going to see another big game because when we've seen it in these playoffs, Steph with his back against the wall a couple times has shown mm-hmm. up in the biggest spots. Jokic has consistently been great in these playoffs. Anthony Davis, when they've needed him, has been able to flip that gear. We need to see that from Tatum in this game if he is a real superstar. And I don't think we're blowing that out of proportion, man. This is the biggest stage. This is the playoffs. This is where superstars come to shine. I need to see you shine, Jason. You did it last year. Show me again. You know, I, I want to see it. And Butler and Book, too, man. I need to mention those guys in that. I mean, they've shined. We need to see Tatum reach that level. Mm-hmm. The Celtics and Tatum both have been extremely disappointing.
3: And I do like that he's stayed aggressive. And again, he's gotten better as these games have gone along. But he hasn't been at the level of his... Guys who we talk about in the same conversations normally. Those guys are showing out. And he's still being sort of erratic. Jason Tatum. So uh, it's funny how much we do judge these guys based on team success. Because, I mean, Harden has so clearly been the best player for Philly in two of their three wins. Like, this isn't like the peak beat. I mean, obviously, he's playing through injury. He has been really good defensively. These last two games, he's been quite good. But you talk about Jokic's playoff failures. What playoff failures? Logan, you know, losing a series with Monte Morris and, and Will Barton.
4: I'm just saying the masses, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't, yeah,
3: I don't hold that. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know know you don't. I know you don't, but to me again, this is just more about Boston. And uh, I hope for their sake that they're able to find a way out of this because I've really liked Jason Tatum and I've, think this Boston team is special in terms of its aggregate basketball skill like one of the most special we've ever seen to have this many capable creators this level of defensive versatility this level of shooting we've talked about it we've raved about it so they shouldn't be down 3-2 to a Philly team that was without Embiid in game one and you know has had garbage hardened for two games really good hardened for three games but this series should be there so we'll see if they can turn it around all of these series now sitting at 3-2. Pretty fun. Pretty fun stuff, Logan. So we'll see how it all plays ba- plays out. We will be back on Saturday reacting to the action over the next couple of days. So stay tuned in for that show. And for now, if you enjoyed this one, you can listen to the audio across all podcasting platforms you can watch us on youtube if you didn't know on the volume page so check us out wherever you prefer you can follow us across social media tiktok and instagram at nerd sesh and twitter at nerd underscore sesh and you can join our discord if you just want to talk with us chat about anything sports really we're pretty active in there and so the link to that is at our link tree in any of our bios across social media so with that as always appreciate you guys for watching enjoy the basketball i've been carson brebber
4: i've been logan camden
3: and this was nerd sesh